Let us pray. O righteous Father, we pray that you would speak to us your word, your son, today, that your word might be carried along into our hearts by your mighty breath, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is Trinity Sunday, and here at Trinity Presbyterian Church, we like to make a big deal out of Trinity Sunday, and not just because it's the name of our church. The Trinity is, of course, going to be prominent in our liturgy every Sunday, but especially today, uh, we seek to highlight the Trinity in our prayers and our hymns. Uh, Today, we're going to recite the Athanasian Creed, which is, yes, rather Uh, lengthy, but very uh, much worth the time. Uh, It's one of the great Trinitarian confessions of the church hammered out in the midst of doctrinal controversy uh, over these matters in the third and fourth century, and named after Athanasius, one of the great defenders of the Orthodox and biblical faith. Uh, The party that we begin uh, later in this service as we partake of the Lord's Supper together will spill over into feasting together and celebrating together at Trinity Fest this afternoon as we celebrate the Trinity as the Trinity Presbyterian Church family. And I hope you all can join us for that. Uh, The Trinity is simply a name for the Christian God. Uh, Trinity, that word, it's not found in the scriptures, but it's simply a way of summarizing what God has revealed about himself in history and in the scriptures. God is one. And God is three. God is a tri-unity. God is one in essence, and he exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything we do, everything we believe and do as Christians is structured and shaped by the Trinity. Let me give you some examples of this. We believe God is love. Scripture tells us God is love. But confessing God is love is just another way of saying God is a trinity. God is love. God is trinity. Two ways of saying the same thing. Love, if you think about it, love requires relationship. Love requires relationship between the lover and the beloved. If God is only one, a one-person God, say, uh, well, you know the saying, one is the loneliest number. What makes one so lonely? There's no one to love. A non-Trinitarian God, like, say, Allah, uh, the Islamic God, can't be loved because who would he have loved before he created? You can't love if there's no one else there to love. And so that's why you have in Islam not love at the center of things, but raw power. And you have a deity that is really self-absorbed. Compare with me for just a moment the Trinity to Allah. Allah might have a book, the Koran, but he does not have a word, an eternal word, who is with him in the beginning and who is one with him and who he has loved from all eternity. And so if Allah is going to love, he's going to have to create, and in a way that makes him dependent on creation. Creation then is not uh, the product or the outflow of his love, but rather he creates in order that he might become loving. 
Not so with the Trinity. The Trinity didn't create so that there might be someone else to love. Father, Son, and Spirit were already sharing love from all eternity. Creation, rather, is the outflow and, and the overflow of God's love within the three persons of the Trinity. The Trinity shows us that love is an eternally central feature of God's life. The Son is the eternal Word of the Father, which means the Father has always been a communicator. And the Word that He has been communicating, the Word He has been speaking from all eternity is love. And indeed, He sent His Word into the world in order to send us a love letter, as it were, in order to communicate and speak that love into our world, into our lives. God has His Word. The Father has His Son. In the Spirit, the Father and Son have loved one another from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit are loving, lovely, and lovable. God is love means God is a trinity. You see this in the passage we read here this morning. John 17, verse 24. Jesus says to his Father, You have loved me before the creation of the world. You loved me before the creation of the world. And of course, we know the Son loved the Father before creation as well. Before there was anything else, there was love. Love within the life of God. The trinity means the the divine love is the oldest and deepest reality in the universe. God's life is a life of love. God's life is a life of eternal, constant motion as Father and Son continually give and receive the love of the Spirit to and from one another. You know, in the New Testament, we are called on again and again to one another, one another. To love one another, to care for one another. But all one anothering starts within God's triune life. The Father and the Son have been one anothering one another from all eternity. God reveals Himself as Trinity that we might know His love. That we might know Him as He is. He doesn't hide His real self from us. No, he makes his inner life public so we can see his character as a God of love, a God of service, a God of humility. Again, that slogan, that biblical confession, God is love, means God is Trinity. Two ways of saying the same thing. Let me give you another example of this. When we say, as we must, as the scriptures do and as we teach here, when we say salvation is by grace, what we really mean is salvation is by the Trinity. Salvation is by grace is really a way of saying salvation is by the Trinity. The gospel has Trinitarian shape. The gospel has a Trinitarian structure, which means you can't tell the story of the gospel without getting into the Trinity. It's not like we've got all these basics as Christians and then eventually you, you, know, you move on to graduate level theology and now we're going to introduce the Trinity. No, when we're talking about the Gospels, the ABCs of the faith, we are talking about the Trinity. What is the Gospel? The Gospel is the Father in love sending His Son into the world. It's the Son coming and obeying the Father by suffering and dying for us in our place as our representative and substitute. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son offered Himself to the Father in His death. Why? So that we might be freely accepted by the Father and fully forgiven. And then the Father sends the Spirit through the Son 
in order to bring us into union with the Father through the Son. In other words, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit brings us into what He has eternally enjoyed, and that is the Son's communion with the Father. The Spirit comes that we might enjoy the love that the Father and the Son have lavished on one another from all eternity. The Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to the Spirit, and the Spirit gives to us. It's this chain of giving, this chain of loving, moving from the Father to us. And so Father, Son, and Spirit together accomplish our whole salvation. Our whole salvation from beginning to end is of grace, which means our whole salvation from beginning to end is the work of the Trinity. The Father is the fount of salvation, the one who gives and sends. The Son is the one who dies. He's the eternal Word who dies for us. And when He dies, He's not acting out of character as if normally He wouldn't be so humble or sacrificial. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus actually revealed his equality with God precisely by refusing to selfishly grasp that equality, but instead by pouring himself out for others. That's how he showed his deity. His godness is on display in his self-giving love. What all this means is that if God weren't triune, there would be no salvation. There would be no gospel. If God's not a trinity, there's no son to take our place. There's no mediator. There's no one who can come and stand between us and God and reconcile us to one another. If there's no Trinity, there's no Son to act as our substitute, we'd have to atone for our own sins, which of course we cannot do. And so no Trinity, no Gospel, no Trinity, no salvation, no God of self-giving love, no good news. That's how it works. The Trinity is the Gospel. I want to take this one step further and clarify something for you here because I think sometimes we don't think about this fully enough. Sometimes when we talk about salvation, we, you know, we focus rightly on the cross and we focus on Jesus hanging on the cross, hanging on that tree. And sometimes it's easy for us to leave the Father and the Spirit out of the picture and we think the Son was doing some kind of solo mission, acting on his own, as it were, in order to bring about our salvation. That's just not true. The cross is the Trinity in action. The cross requires all three persons of the Trinity acting together. On the cross, God provides what God demands. On the cross, God punishes sin, and so he remains just and holy. And he punishes sin in a substitute, and so we see his grace and his mercy. And so through the cross, God can be just and the justifier of sinners who trust in Jesus. The, the cross requires all three persons of the Trinity working together. The whole Trinity is involved in the cross. The Father lays on the Son the punishment we deserve. And the, and the Son offers Himself to the Father in our place through the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 9 tells us. So the cross is the Trinity in action, the triune God putting on a show of love. Yes, the cross is our whole salvation. You know, Christians are, we're the true tree huggers, all right? We hug the tree of the cross. We cling to the tree of the cross because our whole salvation is right there. But not because it's Jesus acting alone. 
What the cross shows us is a God who delights to give himself and share himself. A God who in love is willing to embrace and forgive sinners. A God who in wisdom has found a way to justify sinners without compromising his holiness. The good news of the cross, the good news of the gospel, is that God is for us. All of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not as though the Son had to, had to persuade a begrudging Father to accept this sacrifice. No, the only reason the Son went to the cross to sacrifice Himself is because the Father in love sent Him there. And because the Father laid our sins on Him. The good news of the Gospel is that Father, Son, and Spirit, the whole Trinity, is on your side. God is for you. God is with you. It took all three persons of the Trinity to save you, but they've done it. The Trinity saved your life. So you can't say God is love without invoking the Trinity. You can't talk about the Gospel. You can't talk about salvation, the way of salvation. You can't talk about salvation by grace without getting into the Trinity. Let me give you another example of this. Prayer. Christian prayer is Trinitarian. How do Christians pray? What sets Christian prayer apart from pagan prayer? Christian prayer is normally to the Father as the giver of all gifts, through the Son or in the Son's name, because he's the mediator, the one through whom we approach the Father. We would never go before the Father on our own. We come through a mediator, the Son. And it's by the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, to the Father. Jesus cries out, Abba, to the Father by right. We can only cry out, Abba, Father, by grace. Because the Spirit places that prayer in our hearts and on our lips. Really, it's the Spirit praying through us that enables us to pray. Ephesians 2 says this so well in one verse. We have access to the Father in the Son and by means of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The Son opens the way for us into the Father's presence by His death on the cross that tears the veil that kept us out. And the Spirit empowers our prayers and shapes our prayers and delivers our prayers to the Father. And so really you could say Christian prayer is a participation in the prayer life, the prayer conversation already going on between Father, Son, and Spirit. We're simply stepping into this ongoing conversation, this ongoing prayer that's already happening within the life of God. And so Christian prayer is structured and shaped by the Trinity. The Trinity, so far from being impractical or academic, is right at the heart of the Christian life. The most basic Christian beliefs and practices are Trinitarian. And so you don't have to be some great theologian who's read all kinds of thick books in order to invoke the Trinity. Every time you pray to the Father in the Son's name, you are automatically invoking the Trinity. That's Christian prayer. So whether we're talking about who God is, or how God saves us in the Gospel, or how we pray to the true God, we are dealing with the Trinity. Engaging with the Trinity. Interacting with the Trinity. What I want to focus on today is what Jesus prays for in John 17. Jesus here prays for Christian unity. He prays for Christian 
community. He prays that Christian community would be shaped by and reflective of the Trinity. The shape of the church is Trinitarian. God lives as a Trinity. The church is in His image. The church is shaped by the Trinity. The church has a Trinitarian shape. Uh, in these verses we read from John 17, I want you to notice the link Jesus makes between the Trinity and the church. See, the church is not like other communities. It's not merely a human organization. It's not a club held together by the common interests of its members. You can have a, a club or, or maybe a group of fans of a sports team and they get together and they've got some kind of bond together because of their common loves or common interests. That's not what the church is. The church is a community distinctively created by the Trinity to image the Trinity and held together by the love of the Trinity. The church is an earthly image of the divine life. That's what Jesus is praying for here, that the church would have a Trinitarian structure, that our community would have a Trinitarian shape. Look at what he prays in verses 21 or verses 20 and 21. He prays that all believers would be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. See, what is he praying for here? He's praying all would be one, that all believers, with all their diversities, they would be one, as Father and Son are one. In other words, the relationship of the Father and the Son is the model or the pattern for the relationship of believers to one another. Uh, I really think to understand this prayer, uh, I think this prayer takes us back to God's original design for humanity. It is a prayer that God's original plan for humanity would be fulfilled. You go back to Genesis 1, to the creation of man, and what do you find? God says, let us... Make man in our image according to our likeness. Now why does God speak in the plural there in Genesis 1? Some have said, well, perhaps he's taking counsel with the angels, but that doesn't make any sense. They're not involved in the creation of man in that way. Some have said, well, maybe this is the royal we language, like the queen says, now we shall go get tea. You know, when she's only talking about herself. Uh, that's not it. God speaks in the plural here because God is a plurality of persons. And the creation of man was a joint venture, a joint project of Father, Son, and Spirit. The creation of man is a special inter-Trinitarian act. Now certainly the Trinity is involved in the rest of the creation as well. But what's interesting is in the rest of this chapter God speaks in the singular. So, for example, in Genesis 1.29, God says, I, singular, have given you every herb for food. God doesn't speak in the plural in other places in this chapter when he creates the plants and the animals. He doesn't speak in the plural. It's only humans. So there is something special about the creation of humans. The creation of humans is distinguished in this way in the Genesis account. Now, why is that? Well, Genesis 1 goes on to say God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
We see there's a kind of plurality within the human race. God's image is found in the human community. God's image is found in the unity of male and female. Genesis 1 indicates, right off the bat, a solitary individual, if there could be such a thing, a solitary individual cannot fully image the triune God. At least not the way a human community can. That's Adam's problem. Adam is alone. Adam can't fully image God until he's given a partner. And then when he's given the woman, the bride, now he can fully image God along with her. See, God designed humanity to be a, a diverse unity, just like God himself. If we are made in the image of the triune God, the God who is community in himself, then certainly God's image is going to be found in the human community. We together image God. We together bear God's image. Now, I'm not denying that the image of God is found in each of us individually, but the image of God has this corporate aspect, this corporate dimension. We image God in community. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem, of course, is sin. You keep reading in Genesis, you come to Genesis 3, you see how sin fractured that unity. God designed the human race to live in unity. Diverse persons living in unity, in harmony with one another, reflecting God's own image and likeness. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman both fall into sin. And because of their sin, not only are they alienated from one another, they are all, well, not only are they alienated from God, they are also alienated from one another. They not only turn away from God, they turn away from each other. Indeed, they turn in on themselves. When Adam and his wife sin, self-love replaces self-giving love. Self-absorption replaces self-sacrifice. And so now human beings are no longer living like God lives. And so humanity can no longer image the triune God in fullness because the human race is no longer one. The human race is torn and divided and fragmented by sin. Now what Jesus is doing in John 17 is he's gathering up the pieces of the broken human race or he's taking those torn threads in the fabric of humanity and he's putting the pieces back together. He's praying that the fabric of the human race, the human community that has been torn by sin would be mended. Would be mended by divine grace. He's praying that our fragmented and shattered humanity would be put back together, whole and complete, in the church. That's what the church is. The church is the human race as God meant it to be, the human race as God intended. That's what the church is. Our oneness is to be a creaturely picture of the divine oneness. What God planned for and designed us for from the beginning, that's what we're to experience in the church. The church is to be a community created in the likeness of the Trinity. The church is the divine image-bearing community. God is love. He's the source of all love. God is Social. God is society. He's the source of all society. God is community. He's the source 
of all community. The Trinity is the original family. God is the source of all family. The church family is to be a mirror reflecting to the world the true nature of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has existed in fellowship as a fellowship from all eternity. If we are made in His image, if we have been remade in His image, it means we're made for this fellowship. We are to demonstrate and display this fellowship in our relationships. Now before we really practically explore what all this means, I want to show you what John 17 describes as the basis of this unity. See, if we rush out there and try to do this unity without first understanding what God himself has done already to create this unity, we are bound to fail. This is not something we're going to do in our own strength, in our own powers. This is something that God in His strength and His power has done for us, and now we're to live it out. So look at what Jesus says, again, in verse 21. Jesus prays that we would be one. So He prays all would be one. He's praying for us, all of us disciples, all of us believers. He's praying that we would be one as Father and Son are one. And then note this. He says that they may be one in us. Our unity with one another is in the Father and the Son. Father and Son bind us together. They're bound together. And it's as though what Jesus is going to do at the cross is open up that bond between Father and Son just enough for a multitude of sinners to come in. And then it's going to be rebonded. Father and Son rebonded in love. But now with us inside of that love that the Father and the Son have with one another. Verse 26, Jesus says, I have declared to them your name and I will declare it. Which is to say, that love with which you have loved me, he's praying, that love with which you have loved me might be in them. So he says, I've declared to them your name, who you are. And that's not just a verbal declaration, but it's shown in Jesus' whole life. And then he says, this is so that the love with which you loved me, so that love that's been there from all eternity, might now be in them. The Father's love for the Son is now going to be in us as well. So see, if you ask that question, how do we love one another in such a way that our love is reflective of the Father's love for the Son? It starts with this. Your love for others, your love radiating out towards others, starts with God's love for you. You have to know and experience the love the Father has for the Son in your own life. And then you can begin to love others with that same love, that same overflowing, joyful love the Father has for the Son. He's now lavished on you. And now because you're filled to overflowing with the love of the Father, that love can spill out from you, can flow out from you to others. The love the Father has for the Son is in us. And that is the source of our love for each other. The Father loves His Son and He sent His Son because He wanted us to share in that love. The Father loves His Son and He sent His Son to us because He wants to share His love for His Son with us. Look also at 1722. Jesus says, I gave them, that is those who believe, the disciples, I gave them the glory you gave me. Now that's a truly amazing statement. 
In Isaiah 42, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. How then can Jesus give us this glory if God doesn't give his glory to another? Well, the point is, the Father doesn't hoard his glory. He shares his glory with the Son. He gives his glory to the Son. But the Son is not a glory hog either. The Son doesn't say greedily, oh, now I've got the glory, I'm going to keep it all to myself. No, the Son is happy to share that glory as well. And how does he share that glory? By lavishing on us the love of the Father. The Son shares with us the fullness of the glory and love that the Father has given to him. We share in that love, the divine love. We share in that glory in some way, the divine glory. That's what Jesus is praying for here, that all these things would become a reality. But now we have to ask, if this is what Jesus is praying for, if Jesus is praying that we would have this kind of unity, that the church would have a, a, a Trinitarian shape and structure to its life, what does that mean? What does that prayer for unity mean for us? You know, we live in a day of great cultural isolation. Uh, there's no doubt that people in our culture are lonely. People feel isolated. Community is disintegrating all around us. We see it in our inner cities. You know, on the nightly news, regularly, we see the disintegration of community. We see it in our neighborhoods, even if you live in a, in a comfortable, suburban-type neighborhood. Uh, you can see the disintegration of community there, people closing themselves off from one another. We see it in surveys that are taken that show that uh, fewer and fewer people have friends and family members they can really count on in times of need. Our world likes to talk a lot about love and community as if they were the greatest thing in the world. There's this huge demand for love and for community. But the reality is the supply is very, very short. The demand is there. The supply is not. And I think a lot of that is because we're, we're, we're stuck in our sin and we've lost, I think culture-wide, we've lost our sense of the triune God. Even in the church, I think we've largely lost it. Today, people want community without commitment. People want friendship without accountability. We have a deep sense of entitlement. We talk about rights a whole lot more than we talk about responsibilities. We have a technology, technology and social media available to us that really just allow us to kind of curve in on ourselves, which is how Martin Luther defines sin. It's just being curved in on yourself. We're selfish. We're self-absorbed. And these attitudes and postures, this way of leaning into life makes community virtually impossible. We live in a culture that is full of loneliness and that lacks community. And so what are we to do? Well, you know, there's a biblical principle, an axiom we get from Psalm 115. You become like the God you worship. We no longer worship a trinity. And so what's happened to us? I know a story of a, uh, a man who ran a construction company. And some of the guys in his construction crew were Christians. And some of the guys in his construction crew were not Christians. And he said it was really, really interesting over time uh, how at lunch, when they had their lunch break at the work site, the non-Christian men would just kind of scatter. And each one would go off and, and would eat alone 
in their trunks. And the Christian men on the work crew would stay there and kind of hang out together, kind of circle up and eat their meal together. And, 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 and you know, we might ask, well, now, why is that? What does that anecdote tell you? Well, again, Psalm 115, you become like what you worship. If you worship a God who is a trinity, a God who is full of loving and self-giving relationships, you're going to become a deeply loving and relational person. And I understand, that's going to look different with different personality types. It doesn't mean every Christian's got to be some kind of extrovert, you know, who's always the life of the party. It doesn't mean that. But it means you're going to be seeking out deep and loving relationships where you can give yourself to others and receive from others. When we worship a God who is triune, this is what happens. This is how it shapes us. When we're cut off from the Trinity, we're cut off from relationship. We're cut off from the source of all human community. If God's love within the Trinity is the source of all human love and you're cut off from that, the pool of love is going to dry up. Quickly, And I think that's what we're seeing around us today. Uh, I think most Christian leaders today agree that the two biggest rivals to Christian faith are radical Islam and radical postmodernism. And if you think about it, they're precise opposites of one another. Radical Islam emphasizes oneness. Allah is not a trinity. He is a singular person. And as a result, Islam has a hard time appreciating any kind of diversity. There's unity, but it's not a unity built on love. It's a unity based on brute force. That's all you can get in Islam. Postmodernism, on the other hand, is all about diversity. It's all about appreciating diversity and multiculturalism, but there's no way to unite diverse peoples and cultures. There's no integration point. There's nothing that can bond these different cultures and peoples together. The Christian faith is unique in this way. The Christian faith with the Trinity brings unity and diversity together because God is one and many. God is united and diverse in himself. And so nothing is more logical than that a triune God should create an amazingly diverse creation, an amazingly diverse human race in terms of sex and skin pigmentation and personality, and then unite them all together through his love into one family. A diverse but united family that reflects who he is. And that means the church should be the kind of place where community is not just another buzzword. We have communion with one another because we have communion with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. This, is a di this community that we share in the church has a different kind of quality than community that you'll find anywhere else. Because the bonds that tie us together are the bonds of the love that flows between the Father and the Son. Because we are in the Son and in the Father, we indwell one another as well. God is not distant from us. God is nearer to you than you are to yourself. And so we're not distant from one another. We are near to one another because we are in the Father and in the Son together. In fact, the way that God has welcomed us into his family and into his heart is really the model for how we should welcome one another. That's really what Paul is getting at in Romans 15, that little piece of it that we read. We're not on the outside of God's life looking in. We've been welcomed into the divine family. 
as reborn and adopted children. And when God welcomes you in grace, when He welcomes you in love, what does that do? That enables you then to welcome others in grace and love as well. God's welcome of you is not based on your performance. In fact, it's in spite of your performance. And that's how we must be willing to welcome one another. That's why Paul says you must be willing to deal with one another's weaknesses and failings. And when we welcome one another this way, we not only image the Trinity, but we also embody the gospel. We manifest the free grace of the gospel. We show the world what the gospel is all about. It's not about our performance. It's about God's forgiveness. It's not about earning God's favor. It's about His free and loving welcome of us into His family. We are called to pour love into one another, even as Father and Son have poured love into each other and into each of us. And the way you pour love in is by pouring yourself out. What does it look like? It, it means we've got to live sacrificially. You do this by being a servant and by being willing to sacrifice your agenda and, and whatever credit you might get in order to consider others better than yourself. We do this by bringing glory to others. We do this by making room for others in our lives, even as God has made room for us in His life. We do this by giving others a seat at our tables. Table fellowship, hospitality. God has made a seat for us at His table. He shows us hospitality. We do this by being quick to forgive and slow to anger, even as God has dealt with us with such kindness and such gentleness. We do this by sharing our goods. God has shared His riches with you. We who were poor have been made rich in Christ because Christ who is rich became poor for our sakes. We do this by sharing our goods with one another in times of need. That's what Trinity on earth looks like. When the church is remade into a community that reflects the Trinity, the divine image, that's what it looks like. God is love. We should also be able to say church is love. God is a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. We should be able to say the church is a communion. A communion of saints. A communion of sinners who are being transformed into saints. God has saved us by His grace. The church should be a community of grace. A place where the grace is visible and tangible and palpable. Where the moment you walk in the door or the moment you enter into a gathering of these people, you can just sense the grace. It just washes over you like a waterfall. It's grace, grace, grace. God is one and three. The church should reflect the diversity of God's creation. With men and women who know what it means to be a man or know what it means to be a woman. Real men and real women represented in the church. Different races. The church really in a way is a colorblind institution, a colorblind family. It's a place for all races, nations, tongues, and tribes to come together into one family. The family God promised Abraham. Where all the families of the earth are brought together into one big family. The all-in-one family that Jesus prays for here. 
all in one because we are one in love and one in holiness and one in faith, even though we have all these other creational and cultural diversities amongst us. And that oneness in diversity and diversity in oneness should be seen by how we treat one another, how we care for one another, how we love one another. Father, Son, and Spirit have loved one another from all eternity. And their love was too good and too great to keep it to themselves. They just had to share it. And so from the overflow of their love, God has created and God has redeemed. We have been birthed out of that love and we are destined to share in that love for all eternity. We live and move and have our being in this love. We are swallowed up and immersed in the deep, deep love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. God radiates love. Love is always flowing out from Him. This is the love that has found us and this is the love that has bound us to Him and this is the love that binds us to one another. And as we abide in this love and live in this love and experience this love, this love wells up from within each of us and flows out to others around us as well. Let us love as we have been loved. Let's pray together. Father, we do, we do ask that all might be one, that all disciples of Christ, all believers in Christ might be one, one big happy family that reflects your triune likeness in the earth. Father, that the love that you have for your son and that your son has for you, that that might be the love that binds us together, the love that we know and experience and that flows out from us to those around us. Even as we have been loved, so may we love one another. Amen.